0: Hello and welcome to the Glossy Podcast, our weekly show where we discuss fashion, luxury, and technology with the people making change happen. I'm your host and Glossy senior reporter, Hilary Milneys, and with me this week is Katrina Lake, the founder and CEO of Stitch Fix. Thanks for joining us, Katrina.
1: Hi, thank you for having
0: me. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm, I'm excited. We've uh, written about Stitch Fix and, and talked about you guys so often. Your, Stitch Fix was basically the talk of 2017 as far as e-commerce companies go. It was a really big year for you guys. What did it feel like? Um, it was, what, six, I think six years into launching the business. What was it like laying out all the details about the company that you built for the public for the first time?
1: Yeah. I mean, historically, we've been very private about our success and, you know, we were definitely very private from just like a sharing numbers perspective and, um, you know, talking about milestones we've achieved. We were just like generally pretty quiet about the business. Um, And we also hadn't raised money in years. And so I hadn't raised venture capital money in years. I mean, years. And so, you know, it was interesting because I think it was both, you know, I was probably not as used to the publicness of kind of talk, sharing milestones and sharing um, sharing some of the things we were really proud about with the business. And I also was a little bit of kind of out of practice in um, introducing the business to, um, to you know, what, what would have been practice in introducing it to investors of um, helping people to understand and, um, and get to know the business. Um, and right. so, you know, I think, those elements ended up being a little bit of a, of a double-edged sword of like, you know, for us, like the choice to go public was a choice. Um, we we have a long history of profitability. We had a lot of cash. Like we you know we always wanted to have multiple passive opportunity for the company. And so this was something we had actively thought about and prepared for for a while. Um, but, you know, I don't I think that there was a little bit of a double-edged sword of like, you know, on the one hand, people were shocked and surprised and impressed that the business was a very large business and that we had a history of profitability. Mm-hmm. Um But at the same time, I think there was a lot of new information and a lot of new data and a lot to just kind of like wrap your head around of like, how does this business model work and how is this different from, um, you know, kind of SEM based e-commerce and how is this different from um, stores? And so, you know, it was a lot to, um, it was a lot to wrap kind of people's head around and, um, but, you know, I think overall um, we're very happy with, um, with kind of how how 2017 went and, um, and, you know, we're definitely now in the group of um, the new publicness of, um, of the company and, and our message. Absolutely.
0: And, and so why did last year feel like the right time to, to go public?
1: Yeah, I think, um, I mean, for a lot of reasons, I mean, for us really, like this was about like our business and, you know, were we ready? And we have an extraordinary management team, uh, many of whom have been here for a long time. And so there felt stability that um, we are at a place where we, um, there was a time in our business when we were growing at crazy year over year growth rates and um, look like we are very proud of them and we are very happy with them. But, you know, those growing at, you know, 700%, 300%, even 100% year over year in, um, in a business where you have warehouses and where you have physical product and where you're personalizing every single interaction. Um, that's, you know, that's not super sustainable. And so, you know, one thing, um, that we really thought about as we were thinking about our entry into the public market was, you know, when do we feel like we're at a place of relative stability? Um, And we've now grown 25% or in the range of 25% year over year for the last three quarters. Um, And, you know, I think we we felt like we were, um, we felt like we were well prepared and um, excited for that challenge.
0: Absolutely, and for um, for you as the the founder and the, the CEO, this is obviously your baby. Uh, how do you look at last year, where you were at this time? Not a public company compared to this year, with um, you know your first um, earnings behind you. What does that change about about you as as the CEO of Stitch Fix? What did you know? How do you prioritize differently? How do you manage differently? Did you have to change anything, or was it kind of just business as usual with um, you know a lot more publicity? <laughs>
1: Um, honestly, like being public, it, it doesn't change our strategy. And, you know, for the most part, it doesn't change my day to day very much. Um, you know, I think we we had investors that we cared about and we wanted to um, that we you know, we wanted to be successful for before. And now we have, you know, we have investors we just have a wider range of them. And so, um, you know, it, it definitely doesn't. Um, I don't think it's changed you know, my um, my priorities much, um, you know, it, what it does change is um, it does, you know, the fact that more of what we're doing is um, kind of in the public eye, it does change that. Um, having more capital, just the fact that we have over $200 million in the balance sheet means that, you know, we have more flexibility and that, um, you know, there's, um, I think there's, we, we feel like there are more options available for us as we see interesting opportunities in the future. Um, and I think lastly, and, you know, I might have underestimated this element, but, like the fact that we have investors that um, you know, like people like random people will tell me that they bought stock in stitch fix <laughs> um, and um, and that's cool. And it's exciting and being able to feel like there's this much broader base of people who are invested in our success mm-hmm. um, you know, is it, very different than before. And um and, you know, I think it just it feels like a great responsibility to feel like, you know, we're making money for our for pension funds and that, um, you know, kind of random people that I've met on the street or like I saw the picture of you and I like I bought some stock and like, you know, there's just it, it feels, um, you know, it feels a little bit more democratic, I think.
0: Right. No, no pressure either at all. (laughs) So in terms of what you mentioned, like the opportunities and the options now that you have available, what are those things? Like, what do you feel like you could do now? Or what are you focusing on now that felt a little bit um, out of reach before?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, honestly, I just I don't know that our core strategy has really changed, but I would say that the two, um, like I don't know, the two like engines or the two things that we're focused on are kind of are firstly continuing to improve and innovate on our client experience, and um, this is thinking about ways that we can more deeply personalize our experience, um, hybrid designs, for example, or innovation in technology of how can we use data science to better inform the products that we're developing and ultimately get clients more of what they're loving. Um, all of that kind of innovation and improvement in our client experience is definitely a big bucket of things that I'm really excited about. Um, and the second, and the second bucket is kind of our newer businesses. And so in the last, um, I guess year and a half or so last year and a half, we've launched three new businesses and, um, plus size men's and our premium brands. Um, and those are businesses that, um, are growing and, um, we're really excited to kind of see those businesses continue to grow and thrive. Um, and so, you know, it's kind of, those are probably the two big buckets of things that we're really focused on. Right. Um, I, yeah, you guys are really
0: uh, in the in menswear now and and plus size, like you mentioned. So, how do you take what you've learned from? growing the women's core business and apply it to new demographics, particularly men when it's, you know, do men shop this way or do they, do they buy clothing this way? Is it, are you still sort of testing that out and, and figuring out what actually is different about these demographics? I imagine, um, you, you know, it, it applies to plus size and, and higher end brands as well, but does men's feel like a particularly, uh, different beast?
1: Yeah, I think, um, It does. And um, it does. And I think we were really excited that a lot of what we honed in women's seemed to work. And so, you know, when we looked at men's, like day one of looking at men's, of like, okay, this is the business we want to be in. How do we do it? I mean, everything was on the table. It was literally like, does it, should it be stitch fix or should it not be like, should it be different items? Should it be different? I mean, everything was on the table. And as we tested and got to understand men, um, I would say that from like a psychology perspective, um, men were probably more similar to women than, um, than maybe I was, like expecting. Yeah. so um, I think, you know, to be able to feel like a lot of the things that we figured out in women's then pretty easily translated to men's gives us a lot of confidence as we think about the future and think about um, other markets for us. Um, and I think the quickness with which we were able to learn in men's was also um, better than what we expected. And so I would say like, I mean, in six, within six months or so, um, we felt like we were delivering like the men's experience that we wanted to deliver. And um, in women's, it probably took us, you know, no longer to come up that learning curve. And and with men's, like I probably would have told you it would be about a year or so, like six months was faster than what we would have thought. and so um, I, you know, I think it was just really exciting to be able to see that, like, you know, the kind of technology and capabilities that we had built around how do you understand clients and how do you understand products um, that, you know, even with a cold start, never serving a man before, never sending out like a men's woven shirt before, um, you know, to be able to feel like it was a matter of months before we felt like we could, you know, be, be at kind of a really solid place with that um, was, you know, was was super exciting.
0: Yeah, I guess it turns out if we don't shop so differently after all. <laughs> um,
1: yeah, I mean, it's amazing. You look at the feedback and it's it's some of my favorite things. And people would say, like, are men really going to share feedback? Are they really going to be, you know, are they really like, do they really want to share and it's such a stereotype that people would say about men. And if you look at the feedback on men's, on jeans, for example, it's, like, amazingly similar to women. Like, there are, there are men who are like, I love these jeans, but I have too much junk in my trunk. Or, like, <laughs> these jeans are just, like, way too tight on these thighs. And, like, it's just, like, it's amazing how, um you know, how candid and how authentic and real and, you know, I mean, it just – it was – it was it kind of it was more similar than I would have expected and um and I and I love reading that feedback
0: right and and that customer feedback is really central to to Stitch Fix's value proposition and how the company has has really gotten to where it is so what do you do what do you think set Stitch Fix apart in a way that made people comfortable and want to start this communication feedback that retailers you know as far back as we can remember always lacked all they knew was whether or not someone bought something or Bought something and then returned something. They didn't know what people tried on. There was just not that uh, connection between the brand and the customer that that you guys have have created. So, so how did you get to that level of um, relationship almost with the customer?
1: Yeah I mean it's almost the premise of Stitch Fix of like the um the relationship that you're developing with us and with your stylist is um you know is what helps to deliver the experience and so like if if um it's it's interesting because like we did um, in our onboarding profile. So, you know, we ask all these questions. We ask about your um, your denim sizes, about what kinds of colors you like or don't like. We ask you a lot of questions about yourself. Um, and what's interesting is um, there are, we've done a bunch of testing with the style profile where like the common knowledge is that you remove questions and conversion will go up. So you remove questions, you're, you're removing friction. You know, people can finish the survey faster. People can get to the complete button faster. And so common knowledge is like you remove questions and you'll see conversion go up. The super interesting thing that we've seen is that that's not always true. There are questions that if you don't ask them, the client doesn't actually believe that you're going to be able to send them the right thing. So like take denim, for example, if you take out a bunch of the questions about denim, then the clients may think like, oh, well actually like how could they possibly get me denim that that's going to fit me if they don't ask me questions about it. And so like what's super interesting is there are some questions that of course are important to us from a data perspective so that we can understand people better. They're actually important also from a client perspective of building trust that we're going to be able to deliver that service. And so I think what's interesting about that is that there's kind of this like implicit kind of, I don't know, contractors like between us and our clients where, you know, the more clients share with us, the better we're going to be able to style for them and personalize their experience. Um, But that's also a high bar that we have to live up to. Brands can't just say that they have to live up to it. And so when a client tells us like, I don't like purple or I have too much of this or I have something just like that. Like we need to be able to be capturing that information and be able to deliver a better experience with his or her feedback. Um, and, you know, I think that's not an easy thing to do. I also think it's a thing that we've gotten really good at doing um, over the last six or seven years. Um, and so, you know, I think that that person, that relationship is really rooted in the humanness of like me as a human wanting my stylist to know me and to be able to help me to find things that I love.
0: Right, and and I think that human, that balance of of human and technology and and data that that goes into every Stitch Fix um, order that's sent out, it kind of is like the fabrication of the of the company. And so, when you were starting it, is that something you saw playing out from the very beginning? Like, did you envision this, like customer relationship where you have the human connection as well as the the data science that that informs and powers it?
1: Yeah, I think um, I definitely saw the. I don't think that I had this exact model in mind, but I really thought both were important. Like I think I like I'm five foot two. There's many, many pairs of jeans on this planet and maxi dresses on this planet that are never going to work for me. And so like, I don't think that I was advanced as, you know, I wasn't thinking necessarily of the crazy data science we're doing today, but I at least was thinking about data of like, it would be really helpful to know like these jeans are going to work for me. These, you know, this thing is going to work. This thing isn't just because of my height. Um, and then I think paired with that, the humanness of it was super, like, I felt like was really valuable and was really missing from a lot of e-commerce and frankly store experiences today too. Um, and so there's the um, you know there's the kind of how do you marry those two things of being able to have this like very human very um, person to person experience but at the same time making it really accurate and making it really um, you know kind of predictable and making it, um, more consistent, I think by using data to be able to enhance that experience. And so, you know, I, I absolutely saw value in both of them and, um, you know, they, they come together in a way with stitch fix where we're really getting to take advantage of the best of both worlds. Um, and so, you know, there are like a, there's an example of I, this Tommy Hilfiger jacket is my favorite example of something, but we have like a Tommy Hilfiger jacket, which is funny for those of us who were around the first time that was cool. Um, <laughs> which is cool again. And like, if you look at um, like that, that jacket is available to everybody, like as a stylist, like every, but every stylist, like it, you know, it might be a low recommendation score, but every stylist could ultimately find that jacket to send it to somebody. That jacket has never been sent out to a client over 50. Like we've sent out, you know, hundreds or maybe thousands. I don't know. We've sent many, many times and it's never been sent out. And why is that? It's not that the algorithm says there's a 0% chance. It's that the stylist is layering on her judgment over, um, kind of over those recommendation scores. Um, and so like, it's just like an interesting example of just, you know, how the two can, can work together and, um, and how we benefit from like what the stylist brings. Like I've sent out that Tommy Hilfiger jacket to a client who kept it. And like, I could look at her in Instagram and I could see like, oh, she's going to love this jacket. It right. was just like the algorithm said it was probably like a 40, 48% chance or something. But I could look at her Instagram and be like, this is an 80% chance. Like she's going to love this thing. If she, the only reason she's not going to keep it is if she already has it. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, it's just like you, you can combine the best of both worlds in a way that I think neither one alone is going to be as effective.
0: Right. I, I like what you said about the lack of human touch that you get Online, of course, but even when you walk into a store, they don't know anything about you uh, in the way that the Stitch Fix stylist can over time learn personally as well as through the data. Um, but speaking of that, that massive amount of customer data and the brands that that you work with in order to stock Stitch Fix inventory is it? It's about five hundred brands now.
1: Is that right? Um. I think at, at least five hundred, I would say, yeah,
0: five hundred plus. Uh, do you feel like, as a company that is in re- the retail industry, that started with this, uh, you know, you placed a big bet on on the future of the role that data science would play in retail? Do you almost feel like a responsibility to feed that data back to the to the brands that you work with? Um, it, I'm sure it benefits you guys in the long run if the brands that you're buying inventory from are smarter about the customer that they're ultimately selling to.
1: Absolutely, yeah, and we I think we're really proud of being like a positive part of the brand ecosystem. Like if you think about all of the new retailers that have come around over the last like 10 years even, um, like the, you know, we're a place that's like a true matching channel. We're a full price channel where we're finding clients who are going to love the brands that we're going to introduce them to. Um, and so even, you know, even the business model itself is I think one that is really conducive to like the ecosystem of brands and helping brands thrive. Um, and then beyond that, the data is really valuable and especially for brands that are able to kind of ingest that data and help make their own business better. We've heard anecdotes of brands who will learn from the data of Stitch Fix that like their extra large or large sizing is not working, for example. Mm -hmm. And then they go back and adjust their fit specs and then they're able to serve our channel better. But actually they've been able to serve all of their channels better because they're wholesalers who work with lots of other people besides us. Um, And, you know, I think it's really exciting for us to be able to feel like we can be in a place where you know ultimately all of this is in service of the client. The better our brands do, the better our brands do it find it be at creating clothes that our clients love. Like it's better for our clients, it's better for us. Um, but you know, it's a real partnership that we have with the with with our brand partners, and um, and I think it's a really rewarding part of feeling like you know we can improve their businesses as well as ours in working closely together.
0: Right, and I think that. Um... In terms of where where retail is going, and you look at the relationships that brands have traditionally had with with wholesale retailers like a department store, it's always felt like a a black box. And so, with companies like a Stitch Fix, even like a Rent the Runway as well, they're it's just like opening up this pulse of, of customer sentiment that they haven't had before. Um, and so as you are are, are looking uh, like around at the retail industry at large, do you feel like, like, where do you think is the most optimistic route of growth here? Like, I, I feel like every time we talk to people in the industry, it feels like it's very doom and gloom. Um, but, but obviously you guys had a successful exit last year. What do you think that says about the future of where retail is headed?
1: Yeah, I, I'm very optimistic, actually. I think, um, you know, there have been in addition to us, I think there are, you know, quite, there are a handful of significant exits that were more on the M and bucket that happened last year as well. Um, but you know, I think there's been a real shift in consumer behavior and a real shift in, um, kind of how people buy that, that is real and that a lot of these, um, kind of new e-commerce brands are taking advantage of that. Um, that, you know, I think is going to be a permanent behavior shift. And so, um, I don't know, I think overall I'm optimistic and I think there are a lot of companies out there that, um, are, you know, doing very kind of innovative, authentic, um, things and, you know, having really loyal clients who, um, are customers who are supporting that. And so, um, so overall I, am pretty optimistic.
0: Right. And, and over as you, your company has, has now gone public and you look at where other companies in the space are, it's, um, you know, what would you say is the most valuable lesson you've learned when it comes from getting it to that mature level and, and having a successful exit? I feel like we see few and fewer of those um, in the e-commerce space, in the retail brand space, even as there are so many more direct-to-consumer brands, so many more startups now than ever before. What do you think you've, you've learned the most and, and was the most important move you, you could have made in order to get there?
1: Um, you know, I think there's, um, there's a couple of different questions embedded in there, but I think yes. in terms of switch and what's the most valuable lesson here, um, I, you know, I think it's this like first and foremost client centricity of like, one of the things I love about this business is that like when our clients win, we win. And so, um, like there are other business models, um, like, I don't know if you take an example, like I I don't know, like, I'm trying not to like name somebody. But like, if you take an example, like, I mean, even like something like Facebook or Google, like Mm -hmm. the way that they make the most money is they show the most ads. And that's like, Kind of exactly not what the best client experience is or the best customer experience is. And so, like, we have this amazing alignment where, like, the better we are at helping clients find what they love, the better our business is. And that, like, alignment and purity of, like, being able to feel confident that doing what's best for clients and, you know, specifically doing everything we can to help clients find what they love, like, that can be a really true north, both from, like, how do you serve the client's best perspective, but in our model also from a business perspective. Um, and so, I think being really really confident in that kind of true north of what's best for your business and what's best for your clients. Um, And then being able to hold true to that because, you know, especially as, um, you know, as, as the company has a more public, um, has a more public lens, I guess, Um, you know, there's going to be all kinds of opinions of people who, um, you know, who have different opinions and ideas about your business. And those are all valid. And it's interesting to hear them. But I think being able to feel, you know, increasingly secure and making sure all of your employees feel really confident in kind of what that true north is, I think has just been more important this year than ever
0: right staying focused especially when there is so much noise out there uh seems Mm -hmm. seems like a lesson on the on the flip side what do you think is the biggest challenge you'll face this year i think we we touched on it with the the newfound pressures of of being public, but but what are you focused on and set on tackling?
1: I mean, the biggest challenge is actually in deciding what we're not going to do. Um, and I think the biggest challenge in general, and I mean, you just kind of alluded to this, is this idea of like prioritization and focus. And there are so many things that we're excited about. And there are so many things that we we, we know are going to improve the experience for our clients or um, are going to be able to help us to address new clients. And there's, you know, we, we have a kind of a wealth of things that we know are going to be better for the business and the reality is we can't do all of it um, and um, and it's not right for the business to do all of it and so um, you know was it right last year to do three new businesses and was it should it have been two or should it have been four like you know I don't know that we'll ever know that but um, but you know every kind of every year every day we have to decide what we're going to do but we're also deciding what we're not going to do and um, and I think that like trade-off and prioritization is is the hardest thing.
0: Right and, and on that um, I know something that hasn't come up. I don't, I didn't, don't think you've publicly said you weren't doing it, but I, I don't think I've heard anything about a potential Stitch Fix store. Do you Do you see the business staying online?
1: Yeah, we don't have any plans for a store right now. I think, you know, right now we find that online is the best way that we can serve our clients. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I think one of the things that I really think about with Stitch Fix is how can we make sure that this that our value proposition is eternal? And so, you know, we could we deliver a, a very ex- personalized experience in a store? We totally could. And so, you know, I think if that the direction that we see our clients and that's how we feel like we can serve clients best like you know it's a path that could be available to us but um but today we definitely don't have any plans on it
0: Right. And and I think it, it's, it's it's funny now, I'm sure you've noticed as well, that a lot of brands that, that started online uh, in, in fashion and retail have opened stores because of that, you know, in real life association, people see a store and they see something that's real, especially for, for a company like Stitch Fix, where you guys kind of fit into multiple boxes. It's retail, it's e-commerce, it's some, you know, pseudo subscription. How do you appeal to new customers who are still just finding about, out about the brand today?
1: Yeah, I I mean, there's this really exciting opportunity for us right now, where um, there are still millions upon millions of women who literally don't even know that we exist. And um, on the men's side, it's, you know, the vast, vast majority of men have no idea that we exist. And so there's, there's a real opportunity for us on the kind of awareness, on the awareness front that we're excited about. Um, In terms of like, how, you know, how we, um, like, how we get to know them, how we get to get them to see that there's value in this, like, you know, there's really strong product market fit in just the value proposition itself and this is a company that grew the first three or four years entirely organically uh, and that was real true word of mouth of people just telling other people because they thought that like other people would val- would value the service and want to know about it um, and so that um, you know I think that strong product market fit like still continues to be true and if you think about you know the kind of a dual income household where both parents are working and um, you know, the amount of kind of time pressure that ends up being put on that. Like there's just like a natural fit with like somebody who can help you to find clothes that you love in a way that's much kind of easier and more effective than other alternatives. Um, You know, I think it's interesting because there are so many different ways that people are now finding out about brands. And I think, you know, the marketing element the nimbleness that you have to have in marketing in today's world, um, you know, TV has been an interesting addition for us because it's different, it's new, it is attracting new customers and it's very additive to the mix that we have. Um, but you know, we find that we really have to be diversified in marketing mix of so like, of course, Facebook is important for us and, um, there are other social channels that are important for us. Um, but you know, to be able to reach a diverse set of customers, we actually have to have a diverse set of marketing tools. Um, in, you know, 20 or 30 years ago, you probably, could use like a blunt force instrument like tv and just like get the word out and lots of people will know about it and mm-hmm. in today's world like the media the media that people are surrounding themselves with are so different kind of person to person and demographic by demographic that um that you have to have this very diverse and nimble kind of set of marketing strategies that um that you know we i think we've done a good job of developing over the last few years yeah do you,
0: does it ever feel like a balance between here's like almost having like an, a niche focus on here's the de- the demographic that has worked well in the past let's focus on this these people let's appeal you know like very distinctly to a certain group versus let's cast a big net because I feel like everyone could benefit from Stitch Fix's services.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's an it's an evolution. Like, you know, I don't think we, we didn't start this business to be a niche player. Like, I think we started this business with, you know, more democratic vision in mind that we should be able to help um, people find clothes that they love. And, you know, what might have been a more narrower set of inventory and a narrower price point and, um, you know, maybe a narrower set of aesthetics, you know, four or five years ago now is really broad. Like now, we're just as well able to serve somebody in New York who wants to wear, um, you know, rag and bone and um, Allison Olivia on the weekends and um, ALC. Like, you know, we're able to serve that client as well as we're able to serve somebody who um, I don't know, might want kind of some bright colored um, cheaper, um, you know, items that you can pair with jeans and go out on the weekends on. And um, like, we just can serve this kind of wider range of people and products now that we weren't able to do years ago. And so, you know, I think we've kind of earned the right to be able to um, market to a wider range of people and to be able to um, show a wide range of people that were a great service for them. Right.
0: And, and we're almost out of time. But before you go, I did want to ask, you know, if you had any advice to give to someone who's just launching an e commerce company or a startup, what would you what would you say?
1: Um, I think my primary advice is just like not to be afraid to be shameless and to find as much help and great people as you can. Um, you know, one of the I guess one of the strategies, secrets, I don't know. One of the, um, one of the things about the early days of Stitch Fix was like, I looked at LinkedIn as being like the yellow pages and it was like, who, what company is great at data science Oh, Netflix is like, Oh, this guy, Eric, who runs all of data science at Netflix, he would be a cool person to have coffee with. And like, you know, to be able to just shamelessly go after um, knowledge and talent and people um, is, you know, the worst that anybody can say is no or not respond to you. And, you know, Know, best case scenario like they join your team someday and develop a data science team with 90 people on it maybe not quite 90 people yeah <laughs> people and, um, and so you know I think that like that fearlessness and shamelessness um, was a big benefit to us and I would encourage all entrepreneurs to do that
0: Great. Well, thank you so much, Katrina. I really appreciate you chatting with us. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Yes. And thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode. And in the meantime, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play and Stitcher and leave us any feedback
1: you have.